Good morning. Greetings in Christ's name. I entitled the message this morning, The Triumph of the Cross. Ren, I'd like to thank you for that opening. I think it uh, went well with what I want to share. Thinking about the, the firm establishment of God's Word and how it is forever settled in the heavens. And many times, people have tried to destroy it and remove it. There have been dictators and kings throughout history who have tried to remove the Word of God from their country, and it always failed. I think it was uh, the uh, king of France who many years ago um, was determined to remove the Scriptures from his country because of the fact that he was evil, and it militated against him. And his advisors said, Sire, the Bible is an anchor, or is, a, is an anvil, has worn out many hammers. And so it is. I, I really appreciated what was shared there. I think it was about uh, about 70 years ago that Mao Zedong, the dictator of China, uh, his wife made the statement that by the end of this generation, she said, Christianity in China will be extinct. Today there are over a hundred times as many Christians in China as there were in 1953 when she made this statement. So God's word is durable. I really appreciated the, the focus on that this morning. This morning as we gather for communion, we're gathered to commemorate and to celebrate. We commemorate because we have a personal relationship with Christ. And so we remember him as a person. He mentioned in Luke 22 to his disciples, and said he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. So we remember Jesus as a person and as a son of God when we celebrate communion, because communion is commemorative. It is to remember what he has done. But communion is also celebratory. It's also to celebrate the triumph of Christ's actions on the cross and, the, and what it accomplished and what it did. And I'd really like to focus on the celebration this morning. I'd like to mention three things that I believe the cross accomplished that we should celebrate. First was the redemption of individuals. Secondly was the purchase of the church. And thirdly was the impact on the world. And I, I really, as, as we think about the redemption of individuals, for us as Christians, this is a central tenet of our faith and it's not a strange concept. It's a very well-established concept in our, in our faith and in our belief system. We believe in the redemption of individuals. Many other religions do not. Uh, for example, Islam, there is no personal salvation for individuals. You just live, and you hope you please that big bully in the sky well enough that when the day of judgment comes, he doesn't decide to come down on you. And they even believe that when Allah comes and judges, it will partially depend on his mood that day as to whether you'll be saved or not. He'll take your good works, pile them on one side, and your bad works on the other, and he'll decide whether you can or you can't be part of, of the great joys of eternity. That's not the way it is with the Christian faith. The salvation of individuals, each of us individually having a personal relationship with Christ and benefiting personally from that sacrifice on the cross is the central tenet of our faith. It's who we are and how, what we believe. In Ephesians, 
Brother Lester's been preaching on Ephesians lately. I'm going to go back to chapter 1 just a little bit and talk just a little bit about what he says about us and about our salvation as individuals. He says, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1 and reading through verse 14, he says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. So he's talking here about us as individuals in the church. We have been given an inheritance. And I really like verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. That word earnest in the Greek is bone, which means money that which in purchases is given as a pledge or down payment that the full amount will subsequently be paid. So he's saying to us, the Holy Spirit in you is the down payment to your final physical redemption. That we in this world, this is, it's, it's great to have Jesus in this world. It's a wonderful way to live, but it's not the end. This is just the down payment on what is coming. And that's exciting because when and you as an individual Christian, and I as an individual Christian, we can, we can remember when we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives, that is a promise that we will be with Him in heaven as long as we remain faithful to Him. And that is, that is a beautiful thing because sometimes the Holy Spirit is difficult to contend with. Have you ever had that experience when you did something and a little later that niggling, annoying little voice came and said, you shouldn't have done that. You know you shouldn't have done that. And you try to push it away, like, oh, come on, come on, Lord, I had, I had my reasons. I, I, come on, come on, I was justified. And you keep saying, you shouldn't have done that. And finally, you come to the place where you say, you're right, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm sorry. That annoying little voice is the Holy Spirit. And that is the earnest of your expectation. That is the promise or the earnest of your inheritance. The promise that you will be with him in eternity if you continue to be faithful. That's beautiful. Individual salvation was purchased for us on the cross. That was a spectacular triumph over evil. Because I believe that Satan in the garden tempted Jesus. He may have told Jesus, you know what? When you die, you may not be back. You don't know. You've never died before. God has never died before. I may, I may gain control over you and hold you in the prison of death and triumph over you. I'm not sure what all Satan told Jesus in the garden, but, it, but Jesus chose to, to follow the plan of the Father. And because of that, he triumphed over death. And it was Satan who a little later said, oh, I've been tricked. I actually contributed to the salvation of men when I caused that mob to crucify Jesus. The Bible tells us that, that if they had known that what, what they were doing, basically, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because God's salvation was purchased on the cross for us. And that is a tremendous triumph of the cross. 
The individual trusts after hearing the word of truth. That's a beautiful thing. You probably remember that in your own experience when that word of God became alive to you and you remember that you were a sinner. I, I remember when that happened to me, coming to the realization and understanding that, I mean, I knew that before. I'd been taught that. I, was, I grew up in a Christian home. But when it personally came to my mind and a realization and understanding that you're lost and you need Jesus, that individual is then sealed with the Holy Spirit, the down payment on his final redemption. It's the individual who then displays the fruit of the Spirit. Collectively, we also do. But when people observe the individual, when people watch you as a person, and they see the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in your life, that is a testimony to them, the triumph of the cross. It's the individual who looks forward to the final redemption of his physical body. Whether you die young or old, you can look forward to the day when you will be forever young in heaven. You know, it, it, it's, as I'm getting older, that's becoming more and more of a reality to me. Understanding that my days are numbered. I mean, they've always been numbered. But that reality is being driven home. People my age are beginning to die more often. More of my friends are dying. And I'm realizing that the older I get, the more in terms of uh, likelihood that I will die. That's, that's being driven home to me. But that's okay, because for us as Christians... Death is just a gateway to glory. The triumph of the cross. Had it not been for the cross, you couldn't say that. You'd be unable this morning to have that promise and that um, earnest, that, that at a bone, that promise of redemption, that, has, that down payment that was made for you. You know, when, um, when, we, uh, when Brent bought his house, it wasn't until he made that down payment <clears throat> that it became reality. Until then, it was all just talk. <clears throat> we signed papers and said, we promised to pay this and made that down payment, and then it was real. It was purchased. And that has been done with us. God has made that down payment, and he's purchasing us, and there's going to be a physical redemption that follows. The work of salvation is the work of God, and he's promised to keep us until the end if we're willing to follow. That's a beautiful promise. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about that. Remember that the book, of Philipp, uh, the book of the Philippians was written when Paul was in prison, when he was nearing death, when he knew, he probably knew by the time he penned this epistle, this letter to the Philippian church, that he was going to die by execution. But he was not down. When you look at the book of Philippians, you see the word joy and joyful, I think, 17 times throughout that book, where he enjoins us to be joyful because of the purchase of our salvation on the cross. And he talks about that in Philippians 1, about what God has done and the good work that he's done. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6, where he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. For your fellowship is the in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he's saying that this is his work. 
in your life. Now, you have to concur with God. You have to cooperate with God. He can't do a work in your life if you won't let him. But he's doing the work in your life, and that work will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you can confidently look forward to that day. You don't have to fear it. You don't have to be like the Muslims who say, Oh my, is Allah coming today? And if he does, what mood is he in? Have I done enough? Have I worked hard enough? Have I done enough good works? You don't have to worry about that because that is the work of Christ. When you, if you are trusting Jesus and following him, it's on the merits of his salvation or on his, on his merits that your salvation depends, not on your own. That salvation extends to anyone who is willing to come to him. In Hebrews chapter 7, he says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Able to save to the uttermost that come to God, unto God by him. You know, it, it's really, wouldn't it be something if, if I would come to God as a, as a sinner? And I would say, God, I've been, I've been wicked. And he says, I know you've been wicked. You've been so wicked, I don't want to see you. Just go away. You're done. You've had your chance. You're over. It's out. Right. Go away. You're forever lost. But that's not what he does. He takes in even the most wicked of men and cleanses them and redeems them and makes them his own. Now, it's possible to lose that salvation on an individual basis. Again, the focus is on the salvation of the individual at this point. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 20, and these are some of the most horrible words, I think, in the New Testament. He says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it is happening to them according to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed in her wallowing, to her wallowing in the mire. So this is, uh, I, you know, when, when people talk about Calvinism and the once saved, always saved concept, the scripture always comes to my mind. This is not what the Bible says. We are able to lose our salvation if we are not, if we don't continue following Jesus Christ. That is possible. But God wants to save the individual to the uttermost. And that is part of the triumph of the cross. I want to share a personal experience that I had. And I'm going to change the names, or the name of the individual that this concerns. I, you know, I, especially with, with these messages being posted online, I don't, want, uh, I don't want to use any person that you may know or may not know as, as an individual or as a sermon example. But I'm going to call this man Jim. And this young man was an individual who was an unregenerate, unrepentant sinner. He had grown up in a Christian home but had completely, flatly rejected it and was living in gross sin. And he was unapologetic about it. And this was probably 10 years ago maybe or so. I don't remember how long ago it was. But this young man was interacting with people in our congregation. And I was a pastor there. And he was especially interacting with one person in that congregation. And he was, I felt like a really bad influence. And so finally, I, after interacting with Jim and, and talking to him and trying to help him, I finally posted him a message. I said, would you be so kind as to just stay away from these people? I said, because you are a horrible influence. 
and he cursed at me in the message that came back and, and ra ranted at me and just kind of went away. Never heard he unfriended me and he was gone. <clears throat> Not too long ago, I was at a community event and I found myself sitting right next to that person. And I had kind of forgotten. In fact, I had forgotten about this incident. I wouldn't have remembered it if I hadn't been reminded. And we talked for a little while and made small talk. And then he said, could I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He said, do you remember when quite some years ago you asked me to stop interacting with people from your congregation because you were, I was such a horrible influence? And I said, yes, I do remember. I said, I've forgotten it. I wouldn't have remembered it, but that you'd reminded me. He said, you know, I just want to thank you for taking that stand. He said, um, I was a horrible influence. He said, I was a terrible person. And I was taking others with me. And I said, but you're not anymore, are you? I said, you're a follower of Christ now, aren't you? He said, oh, yes. He said, I love Jesus today. He said, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm, an act, I'm active in my church, he said, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a part of it. And today, he said, my heart is missions. I want to bring others to Jesus Christ. And I told him, you know, I said, maybe I should apologize to you. I said, perhaps I should have been more concerned about bringing you to Christ. He said, well, the thing was, I wasn't interested at that time. And he said, probably did the right thing in just cutting me off. And then he went on to say, he said, now another question. He said, do you think that this other person whom he used to know would be interested in hearing from me? And I said, absolutely. I said, absolutely he would. I said, I really encourage you to reach out to the people you used to know and be a bad influence today because I said, now you're going to be a good influence, an influence for the kingdom. Do reach out to them. And I said, I'm so, so happy. And I, I, I praise God and I congratulate you for what you have allowed God to accomplish in your life. And I, I was thinking about that and just thinking about the fact that the change that was evident in the life of that young man. His face shone where before it was twisted with evil. Individual salvation, that's the triumph of the cross. It becomes more real when it happens in our own lives and in the lives of others that we know. When he takes men and women who are twisted and corrupt and evil and he changes them. And he makes them pillars in his kingdom. The salvation of the individual. Christianity is really the only faith that focuses on the individual. Individual salvation. You're not just part of an ethnic group or part of a larger group. But you are an individual to God. And he knows you by name. He told the disciples, he said, don't rejoice because you're casting out, you're able to cast out demons. Rejoice because your name is written in heaven. And by the grace of God, if you are a Christian and you've, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your name is literally written in the, in the, in the, in the membership rolls of heaven. 
You are a citizen of that city. I just want to praise God for that this morning. For all of us here as individuals. That we can, we can say, I am coming together. We're, we're coming together as a group of individuals. We're, we're the church, yes. We're the congregation. But we're also coming together as a group of individuals to commemorate the fact, to, to celebrate the fact that Jesus has saved us as individuals. Are you excited this morning? That you're alive and saved and ready for heaven? That's a great place to be. No matter what your social status, your financial status, if you are part of that kingdom of Christ, that's a great place to be. Even I think of our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in places like China, where they're surveilled and constantly watched, and increasingly so in the United States, unfortunately. Or I think of, of people who are you know, they're, they're constantly, they're in, in North Korea, for example, where it's a death sentence there to own a Bible. If they raid your home and find a Bible, they will kill you. And not only will they kill you, but they'll kill your entire family and your, your extended family. They will put in a concentration camp because you own a Bible. That's a horrible place to live. And yet those people who are in that place who are redeemed, are far better off. They're in a much better place than people who live in freedom who don't know Jesus Christ. And I think that should really be driven home to us as we participate in communion. We are commemorating that personal salvation. I'm commemorating the fact that Jesus saved me. But now going on, it's also collectively that we celebrate what Christ has done. He died to purchase his bride. You know, in the Old Testament, and in, in the Jewish, uh, in, the, in the first century, when Jews, the, the Jewish people, with their, uh, their wedding customs, the, the husband always provided for the bride. The husband would build a home in the area where his father lived. In fact, they, in many cases, they literally had extended houses that were large or right next to each other. And he would, he would gather his bride and he would take her home. He bore the expense. He paid the dowry in some cases. He did whatever he needed to do to collect his bride. Well, so did Jesus. He laid down his life so that he could collect his bride. In Hebrews chapter 1, the first two verses, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just prior to this is chapter 11 of Hebrews, and of course that's the hall of faith, right? And that's where all the saints are put on display and we're reminded, the saints down through the years, Old Testament and uh, saints that were, that were followers of God, and he, and he reminds us of that. And then he goes on to say, look, you're beset with so great a cloud of witnesses. And I, I, the, the word that is... Um, that is translated witnesses here in the Greek is martyrs, which means martyrs, essentially. 
And so the, the idea of a witness, the, the word that is translated witness in the New Testament is often martus, which means those who were willing or who did give their lives for Christ or, or for God. So he's, he's talking about, I believe, he's talking about the fact that those people are in heaven and, or they're with Jesus in paradise. And, and I personally believe, I, I may be wrong, but I personally believe that they have some awareness of what's going on here. And as a result, we are in, we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. And he says, because of that, he says, run the race which is set before you with patience. And he says, then look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What do you think that joy was? Do you think that was the church? I tend to think so, the salvation of the church, the purchase of his bride. As Jesus was in Pilate's hall, being spit on, being beaten, being falsely accused. And the very people in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem who had followed him earlier for free food and medical care, perhaps, were in that crowd that was calling for his execution by crucifixion. All of that humiliation and rejection and pain, in the middle of it, it says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross knowing that by, by doing so, he was purchasing his bride. So Jesus paid the ultimate dowry. He paid the price for his bride that he could buy her and that she could be his own, that he could redeem her. In Ephesians chapter 5, that familiar scripture where it talks about husband and wife, Paul talks about that. Paul used that love relationship between Christ and the church as an example of what the love relationship should be on earth between a husband and his wife. He says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, agapio, agape love, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Purchasing to, for himself a church, a bride, and cleansing that bride, and, and bringing that bride to the point where she's without spot and blemish. He wants us to follow him today, being willing to give up those things that are spots and blemishes so that his church can continue to be a joy to him. He talked about his bride in a, in a different analogy in Matthew 5, where he said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Because of my job, I used to uh, fly to Dallas a lot. And uh, we'd fly into the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. And sometimes I would come in there at night. Or early in the morning, even before daylight, I would take a, a very early flight out of Fort Wayne. And as we'd come into the city, we'd fly over the city, and it was there were lights everywhere that big city all lighted up and it's beautiful from the air and you've you've all had this experience flying into other cities and you see the beauty of that city of lights 
So Jesus said, that's the way my church is going to be. She's going to be like a city set on a hill that can't be hid. Everyone will see her because she's alive and lighted up. And I set her up out in the world where she's very visible. And I believe that's why Jesus didn't just say, well, okay, as my bride, as, as, as individuals are saved, I'm immediately going to take them to heaven and they can start enjoying the bliss of eternal life. No, he left us here on earth where we are visible to the world around us so they can see what the bride of Christ looks like. That's because he bought us. That was the triumph of the cross. Without that beautiful city, would not be there without that sacrifice that he made on the cross. When we were, when our children were young, we used to sing the song a lot, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. We've all, we've all uh, sung that, I'm sure, with our children at some point. And he says, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So the church casts a light that helps others see. We, uh, we put a row of solar lights on our... Uh, we put in a new vinyl fence back, back behind our house, put a row of solar lights on it. Last night we were looking at it after dark. It lit up. You know, there were a bunch of little individual lights, ten of them. But together they collectively light up the area to the point where you could probably almost read a book there. And I was excited about that. And, that's, and that made me think of the church. That's what the church is like. It's lighting up the world around it. And that is the triumph of the cross. And then, lastly, the impact on the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God intended the gospel for the world. And he intended to impact the world by his church and by those individuals who are saved. Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, in whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what kind of a world did Paul live in? Well, Paul lived in what we today call the Roman world. He didn't get to Rome until later, late in his life. In fact, he went there to be executed, basically. But he wanted to go to Rome, and he was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he had all the rights of that went with that. And we see him using that repeatedly in the New Testament when there were local officials who wanted to, or Roman centurions who wanted to discourage him or, or punish him, he would invoke that Roman citizenship. He had a right to, and it's, glad, and it's good that he did. But he's, he, he lived in a very wicked world. The Romans were evil. I know they were a great culture. I know they, they played a part in, in God's plan to bring salvation to the world because they provided order and a transportation system. And they allowed the church, the, the gospel, to be spread quickly. But they were evil. The Romans were pagans. 
And I'm going to talk more about paganism just a little bit later because it's, it's, it's definitely rearing its ugly head in America very strongly right now. But the Romans were pagans, and they had little regard for the weak because that's what paganism did. Paganism had no regard for the weak. They had slaves. The Romans routinely made their female slaves work in the nude for their own sensual, twisted, perverted enjoyment. Slaves who were humiliated and had to work without clothing day after day after day. They murdered children. The, the, the Roman patriarch said, well, we were talking to our son Doug just recently, and I think Wilma mentioned this on Wednesday evening, but I'll bring it up again. He talked about the patriarchal system in Rome. You know, we have people who claim that you know, Christianity is patriarchal and all that nonsense that we hear today. But the Roman system truly was patriarchal. And what I mean by that is that in every Roman family, you had a patriarch. The oldest member of that family, generally, the oldest male member of that family, the, the father or grandfather. And he had pretty absolute control over that family. In fact, such absolute control that when a child was born in that family, whether it was for his own wife or, or daughter-in-law or whatever it may be, they brought that baby and laid it before him and he decided whether it lived or died. And if it had any defects and displeased him, they would sometimes literally take those children and put them out in the wild and let them die. That's what kind of people they were. They were evil. They were evil people. Homosexuality was rampant. Transsexuality existed there too, believe it or not, just like it does in America. The strong preyed on the weak all the time. And the weakest and most vulnerable members of society were the ones who suffered the most, children and slaves. And the gospel of Christ set those people free. It really did. Paul brought, brought this, this message that we are all equal in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, Roman or barbarian. It doesn't matter. Scythian or barbarian, he says, whatever you were at the foot of the cross, you were equal in Christ. We have the, we have the story of Philemon where uh, Onesimus the slave was, was, came, he escaped from his master, Philemon. Philemon was a Christian. And Onesimus came to Paul, and, and Paul helped lead him to Jesus Christ. And Paul sent him back to his master. And he sent him back with the book of Philemon, that letter. That's a personal letter to Philemon that was written by Paul to that slave owner. And it's beautiful because he says in there, Look, Philemon, you owe me everything. I brought you to Christ. You owe me everything. I'm sending Philemon back, or I'm sending Onesimus back to you, and I'm asking you, treat him like your own son. And Philemon did. And so, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, Christianity has, you know, they really missed the mark. The, the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery. No, it doesn't condemn slavery. That's true. But what it does is sets a framework that makes slavery obsolete because it says, look, masters, and these were talking about masters of slaves. When he said masters, he was talking to men who own slaves. He was saying, remember that you have a master in heaven. And that master is going to hold you accountable for how you treat your slaves. So the whole idea of paganism, God pushed back strongly in his, in his word. So Paul talks about this and he says that he might deliver us from this present evil world 
according to the will of God and our Father. So he's saying to them, even though we live in the middle of this culture that's dark and evil and twisted, we can be holy and righteous before God. We don't have to be like they are. And the, the, the church in the Roman Empire suffered tremendously for years. They were, they were the ones who had to go to the catacombs. The catacombs were salt mines that were under the city of Rome. It was dark in there. And there was such a labyrinth of, 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 of paths that you could easily get lost and never find your way out. That's where the Christians went for years in Rome. You can go to the catacombs today and you can still find messages on the walls that were written by Christians, pictures of individuals. They lived there, they died there, they were buried there. They were persecuted there. The Christians were the ones, in, in the Roman Empire, when there was an outbreak of illness, the Romans were the kind of people who would abandon those who were dying because they didn't want to die. And guess who took care of the, of the sick in the middle of plagues? It was the Christians. They would come out of the catacombs and go help those communities that were dying. And they themselves would die from the illness sometimes. It changed everything. The weak and the beggarly elements were lifted up on an equal footing with everyone else with those who were rich and powerful and the gospel spread rapidly people saw this and they were amazed by it and the gospel spread very rapidly there's an estimate that i don't know where this number comes from i i i don't i don't think i i think the growth was even faster than this but it says that there were 7,500 Christians by the end of the first century, 40,000 Christians by 150 A.D., 200,000 Christians by 200 A.D., and 2 million by 250 A.D. That would have been 2% of the Roman Empire. It's believed that within the first two to 300 years, 10% of the Roman Empire became Christian. 10%, that's one out of every 10 people. The gospel spread rapidly. And this changed the face, not only of the Roman Empire, but of the world. I have an article here that I want to share with you uh, that someone sent to me actually at work the other day. And it comes from the Colson Center. I don't know how familiar you are with the Colson Center, but it was a work of Chuck Colson. Chuck was caught up in the Watergate affair many years ago under, under Richard Nixon. And he, he became a Christian, and, and he's, he's now gone, but he, he established a uh, a foundation called the Colson Center, and they still do a lot. I really appreciate their work. And, and he wrote an article, and this article was passed on to me by one of the engineers at work, and it says, abortion is making us pagan should the strong crush the weak. And he talks here about, he starts out by saying Christians who work in politics to end legalize abortion do so because innocent lives are at stake. That would be enough cause in and of itself. However, abortion isn't just one of the many issues that we should care about. In many ways, abortion, perhaps more than any other single issue, symbolizes our society's core beliefs. Simply put, Christian societies do not kill their smallest, most vulnerable members. Pagan societies, on the other hand, do. And the Romans did. Um, one of the things he mentions here in the article is that paleontologists, or I'm sorry, not paleontologists, archaeologists know 
They found a Greek or Roman brothel when they unearthed a pit of newborn baby's bones. And he just talks about the fact that that was what the pagans did. As I said before, the strong preyed on the weak. And if you were born in a weak position in the Roman Empire, it's just the way it was. You suffered your whole life. That's not how it is in America, or at least it hasn't been. Why? Because in America we have subscribed to a much higher set of standards and ethics than the Romans did. Our founding fathers, praise God, talked about the fact that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, and that pertained to everybody, even the weakest. And today, if I go, even, even in the state America's in, if, if I were to go to the middle of some city and I would have some weak, innocent person with me like a child and I would abuse that child openly, everybody would turn on me and hate me because we're taught that's wrong. In the Roman Empire, that was not the case. What I did to my slave was completely up to me. It could be the most hideous, awful thing and nobody cared because that was my property, because I was strong and my slave was weak. Not so in the church. It impacted the world, brothers and sisters. It changed the entire world. We have a Western culture today because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We live in freedom today because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The triumph of God's love the beauty of God's love through Christ on the cross. I'd just like to pause and think about that for a moment in closing. How that Jesus, when he, was, when he allowed himself to be nailed to that cross and he suffered pain and humiliation, the Son of God who had come from heaven from the glories and the beauty of heaven, and suffered so terribly on earth. That bought for me personal salvation. It bought for me a place in the church, the bride of Christ. That is a bright future. We have a, our, our future, as someone said, is as bright as the promises of God. It's very bright. And it put me in a world that was made much, 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 much better because of the influence of the gospel. As I celebrate communion this morning, I don't want this to be ho-hum and routine. I want to celebrate the fact that those are things God did for me. And when I take that bread and drink of that cup, I am commemorating my Lord and Savior, and I am celebrating His triumph on the cross. Praise His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank